All right, good morning, Three Circle. Great to be with you guys today as we kick off the new year with our first gatherings of 2024. Can't believe I'm even saying those words that we're really here, but we really are. And I'm excited. I'm excited about all that God has in store for us this year. I want to uh, welcome all of our campuses right now and those who are online joining us. One thing we're going to do to kick off our new year is every week for a few months, I think, we're going to, at some point in the gathering, take a minute, stop, and pray for another local church in our area that we love that we appreciate what they do. I learned early on from one of my mentors, he said, hey, other churches are, you don't compete with other churches. Other churches who love Jesus, love and believe the Bible and the gospel, they may not do everything exactly the way you do it or see everything exactly the way that you do, but they're your siblings, they're just not your twins. Okay, And I thought it was a great way to say it. In fact, we need all of our brothers and sisters in our area doing great work. So each week we're going to take a minute and pray over a church that we really appreciate and, and love. And today we're going to start with First Baptist Fairhope. So I'm going to invite us just for a moment to stop and pray for them. First Baptist Fairhope is led by Pastor Eric Hankins, great guy, known him for several years now, a faithful preacher of the word. They have an incredible presence in our community. And what we're going to do is just take a minute now. I want us to pray for their church. I want us to pray for their, their uh, pastor and their staff and that God would use First Baptist Fairhope in a bigger way than ever in 2024 all over our area. Okay. Would y'all do that with me? And we as three circles just want to pray over them right now. So let's bow our heads together and let's pray for them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for one of the other great churches in our area. We pray right now as one body of believers to another, we pray for First Baptist Fairhope, for Pastor Eric, for their team, for their staff, uh, that you would use them in a major way this year. That this be the greatest year they've ever had uh, for impact and ministry, that you'd protect them, that you would give them boldness and courage and resources to do what they need to do and what you've called them to do, and that you would bless First Baptist Fairhope and their team this year, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining me in that. Now, we're going to dive into God's word, and we are beginning a series on David and Goliath. Now, there's a couple of things I need to do to kind of form this up for us. First of all, David and Goliath is not a kid story. Okay, a dude killing another guy with a slingshot and then cutting his head off, that's not a kid story. I don't know if you know it. In fact, it's funny how our kid stories ended up kid stories. The ones we decided were kid stories were the following. A bunch of people can't get on a boat and they drown. Uh... Next one, uh, three, three kids get thrown into a fiery furnace to burn up. Uh, next one, uh, old guy gets thrown into a lion's den to be eaten alive. And then, of course, uh, a, a kid kills a big dude with a slingshot and then cuts his head off. Okay, so kid stories, not scary at all. So here's the deal. There are no kid stories in the Bible. There's not a single kid story in the Bible. There are people stories. The Bible tells us the word of God self-revelates. It tells you that, that the word is for all of us. So David and Goliath is for the eight-year-old and the 80-year-old, okay? Secondly, David and Goliath often is taught in a, in, in a less than biblical way, okay? And, and it's because we need to understand, and I always want you to remember, when we look at the word of God, the Bible is a mega narrative. It's got one big story that's got micro pieces to it that are all connected. And if you disconnect the micro pieces from the macro part of it, you miss the point of the micros, okay? So in order to understand the point of the micros, I gotta keep the macro in, in, in vision. And so what I mean by that is that 
Every piece of the Bible is pointing to Jesus. That's what I mean by that. David and Goliath is ultimately about Jesus. It, the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's pointing us to Jesus, forward, backwards, right at it in the Gospels. And so what I want you to understand is David and Goliath is not about you being David, okay, or you slaying the giants in your life. That's not primarily what that story is about. The story of David and Goliath is to point you to the greater story coming because the point is not that you and I can be some version of David. The point is Jesus was and is the greater David. Because David's going to step into a valley, we're going to see it in a few weeks, and represent God's people against their greatest enemy, and he's going to defeat him. In a much greater way, Jesus will step onto a cross and face our greatest enemy, sin and death and all of hell, and he will ultimately finish and defeat those things for us. David will come off of that battlefield with the giant's armor in his hand and his head. Jesus, the Bible says, came out of the tomb with all authority given to him from above. He even holds authority over death and Hades, the Bible says. The keys are in his hand. So as we look at this story, we realize David and Goliath is a little preview to the main event that is Jesus, our great victor, okay? That's, that's, what, that's what this is about. Now, there's our macro. If we keep that in mind as we study this story, we will better understand the micro. We'll understand what we're looking at here, okay? So today we're going to dive in now to this, this little slice of the history, if you will, of God's people. Now, God's people, the Israelites, had decided at this point in the narrative that they wanted a king. They had not had a king up until this point. Their king was God himself. But all the other countries around had kings that you could see. And they said, hey, we want one of those. And God warned them through Samuel, their prophet. All they had was a prophet, Samuel. And Samuel told them, oh, you don't want one of those. They said, oh, yeah, we want a king. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't want one of those. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so God gave them a king. In his great wisdom, he gives them a king. And they choose him, by the way, and God ordains it. And his name is Saul. And they choose him because he's the biggest, best-looking dude in Israel. Seems like an easy way to choose him, right? He's the biggest. He's great fighter, good-looking guy. So they chose Tom Selleck, Magnum P.I. That's their guy, right? That's for all you 80s people. In the 80s, growing up in an 80s house, I heard my mom talk about Tom Selleck and Patrick Duffy. Some of y'all don't know who those people are. One of them was on Dallas and the other one was on Magnum P.I., and uh, that's, that was my world. So, so it, today it'd be Chris Hemsworth. Okay, there you go. I go modern. So they had a guy. They had a king. And he is very problematic. He's very problematic. He's got issues, character issues. He's a mess. And we're going to see some of that today. And we're going to learn a lot about him. In this story today, we're going to have four main characters. The prophet of Israel is Samuel. He holds a very sacred office. David, the future king. Goliath, the champion of the greatest enemy that Israel had, and Saul. Let's dive in. 1 Samuel 17. It says, in this point of the story, King, king Saul's the, the king, and it says, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. The Philistines are their greatest enemy. And they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah, and in Ephes-Demim. 
And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Okay, you get the picture. I got Israel's army here, Philistines' army here. The Philistines are very dangerous. They're the best army around and they got the biggest, baddest fighter in the land. His name's Goliath. Okay, you got all that. But one thing I want you to see that's a detail is that it says where the Philistines were was this place called Sukkot, which was in Judah. That's what it says. What this means is they've been invaded. Israel has been invaded by their enemy, the Philistines. Now, that's on the macro scale. Again, macro narrative of the Bible. God has a people and they're under attack. In a micro sense, you need to understand that spiritually we are going to be under attack. And your enemy does not just kick back and rest on his laurels. Your enemy is always trying to advance. Your enemy is always trying to invade your life, your home, your family, your kids. I can't, I can't tell you what 2024 is going to bring for you, but I can guarantee one thing, attack. It's coming. So the Philistines were not cool just going, well, Israel can do their thing and we'll do ours. No, they're like, we're going to advance on Israel. And they have, a, they have invaded their territory. Tells you something here. Kings like Saul, one of their main jobs were to protect their borders. Somebody's supposed to be keeping people out. But they got the whole army in. Okay? They've been invaded. And we get invaded as well. In 1 Samuel 17, 4-7, it says this. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. That word champion, by the way, in the Hebrew is the idea of representation. He has so far successfully represented Philistine. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, meaning it was huge. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. Several things I want us to see here. First of all, the Bible is wanting you to see Goliath is intimidating. He is a massive man. He is a huge man and he is scary. He's a champion. Meaning he's, already, he's already proved himself. He's probably already legendary. And he's got amazing armor. The Philistines had some new armor that actually this kind of armor of mail, that detail is there because it was a new kind of armor that's so inventive it's going to last like a long time. The Romans are going to use it. Medieval people are going to keep perfecting it. But it means that they begin to use little chain links to create a very movable armor. And it literally, the original language is telling you he looked like a snake. He looked like he had snake skin on. Okay. It's amazing how much the imagery uh, continues to point towards Jesus because we know that uh, Satan, our great enemy, is described as the serpent in so many ways. And here standing in front of Israel is a massive man that looks like he's got a snake wrapped around him with his armor, okay? So it just doesn't end the connections here. And so he's got this incredible armor and he has incredible weaponry. And the Bible tells you how tall he is. He is approximately, write it down, 10 feet tall. He's just shy of 10 feet tall. Now, I know exactly how tall 10 feet is because I spent a major portion of my young life trying to hit 10 feet with my hands. 
because I wanted to be like Mike. Michael Jordan, that is. The difference is, if you know his story, in high school, he got a growth spurt. He was about 5'11-ish, shot to six foot four, and then in college, shot to six foot six. Different story for me. Same time, my body decided it was done at about 5'11-ish. <laughs> so, alas, I never got to that 10 feet. Uh, I swatted at it a lot. Every now and then, I could feel my fingertip hitting it, but I never dunked, not once. Not once. It's a whole other story. I'm a little hurt by it, okay? But I know where 10 feet stands. And I want you to understand when Goliath stepped into that valley that day, he looked like a basketball goal coming at him. In fact, if you want to know how big that is, Shaquille O'Neal. If you watch TV, Shaquille O'Neal is often on TV with Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley is a massive man. He is six foot six. He's a big dude. And when Shaquille stands next to him, he makes him look tiny. Because Shaquille O'Neal is huge. Shaquille O'Neal is seven foot one. Goliath was almost three feet taller than Shaq. Okay? It's a big dude, and the Bible wants you to know it. But I like to show you details in the Bible that are kind of cool. And y'all want to see something cool here? Okay? And, and because there's good news within this intimidation, the Bible tells you exactly how much his armor weighs. It tells you. Here's how much that armor weighed, and here's how much the head of the spear, because it was the, no one had ever seen a spear like that, and they tell you how much it weighed. How did they know that? Because they weighed it. How did they weigh it? Because they won. That's how. That's how. As the Bible's telling you the story, they're giving you a clue right out of the gate. Oh, just so you know. Goliath's a dead man. Goliath's not going to make out of this alive. The reason they're going to know how much it all weighs is because after David puts him on the ground, they get his armor and his spear, and they're like, we should weigh this stuff. And I love that the Bible's trying to tell you they were victors, that they're going to be the winners. And in the mega narrative, you and I, we're in the middle of the battle every day, but the Bible tells you over and over again to not forget. In the end, we win, and the battle's already over. God's already got this, so relax a little bit, right? Jesus is already, like David's going to hold up the head of Goliath and his armor. Jesus, the Bible says, held up the keys to death and Hades. He has the authority and the victory. Let's chill out a little bit, right? It's all right. And so the Bible tells you, yeah, we knew how much it weighed because <clears throat> we won. But he's 10 feet tall. Let's get back to it. At this point, he's an intimidating guy. And he didn't just stand there. He, he spoke. A lot of people think Goliath was stupid. I did. I thought big you know, kind of lumbering giant as a kid. All the pictures made David look awesome and Goliath's like, you know. Not the case. He's a smart guy. Listen to his argument. He uses ancient warfare to argue his point with Israel. First Samuel 17, 8 through 11. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. And let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, we will be your servants. If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, 
They were dismayed and greatly afraid. And in verse 16, it tells you this. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Now, let's just dive in here. This is a smart guy. Goliath's making a great point. In fact, it's kind of merciful. He says to them, why are we all going to fight? Why are we all going to risk our lives? No one else has to die today except one dude. Send a man down here and I will put myself on the line and I'm going to represent them and you represent him and, 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 and Israel. And that's how we're going to do this. And by the way, another thing you need to note is he's calling someone out specifically. Oh, it's very specific who he's calling out. Who is the man he's calling out? Can someone just say it real loud? I can hear you in Robertsdale right now at all the campuses. I hear you in Daphne. Saul, watch this. Because Philistines, the the Philistines, they had a giant. They had a huge man. His name was Goliath. Did you know Israel had a giant too? His name is Saul. The Bible tells you. That's why they chose him. The Bible says Saul was head and shoulders taller than the biggest man in Israel. Do you understand? He was their giant. He was their fighter. That's why they wanted him all along. Remember, they said, we need a guy. And so Goliath knows this, and he says, send your guy. Where's your boy? Where's your man? We got a guy. I'm him. Where's your guy? And it's Saul. And the Bible tells us he did this morning and evening for 40 days. He's calling out Saul. He's calling out Saul. In fact, I want you to understand this. Saul had 80 opportunities to take action. Did you know that? How many days did the giant walk down into the valley? 40. How many times a day? Twice. 80 times Saul gets challenged and he does nothing. See, what I want you to understand is Saul had been given a chair by God. It was those things in his life that he was made and meant and ordained to engage in. And he decided to be passive. And by the way, I want to tell you today, every single one of us, men and women, young and old, we all have a chair that God's given us. Every single one of us. You have something God's put in your hands, whether it's big or small, he's put it in your hand and it's yours. And he says, here's your chair. And I expect you to engage in these things. It's the chair you sit in and no one else gets that chair. It's you. So if you're a parent, you sit in a certain chair. Even if it's just you, your own body, how you're taking care of yourself, your mental space, your spiritual space, that's your chair. If you have responsibilities at work, you have a chair. If you're a granddad or a grandma and you're a patriarch or a matriarch of a family, you have a chair. And when God gives someone a chair and he gives everyone a chair, he means for you to engage in what he's put in your hands. So Saul sat in the chair of authority over Israel. He was the king and he enjoyed what that meant. He got all the free Chick-fil-A he wanted. He can even make them open on Sundays. He was the king. You know what I mean? He got all of that. But when it came time to act, He would not. Not once, not 10, not 15, not 20, not 30, not 40. 80 times the challenge is given and he's the man that's supposed to act. He's supposed to do something. He's supposed to be engaged and instead he is passive. He thinks maybe it'll all go away. Maybe the armies will just decide to go away, but they're not. They're advancing. They've already invaded. They're already there. And the giant's not going away. 
He's going to come the next day. There's going to be day 41 and opportunity 81 to do something. It's not going away. It's not in neutral. And yet he does nothing. He's passive. And hear me today, church, for all of us and for Saul, there is a price for passivity. There's a price. If you're a parent, if you're a spouse, God's given you a chair called your marriage. Are you engaged? Are you in there? Are you, are, have you put the car in neutral? Because it's going somewhere. If you're granddad or your grandma, if you're a teacher, if you're a small group leader, or even if you, if you just have areas in your own life, you're single today and you go, well, what am I doing with my life? You've been given a sacred chair. What are you doing? We're not made for passivity. We're not meant for passivity. What am I doing with what God has given me? George Washington famously led the Revolutionary War for the Continental Army and the future United States of America. And George Washington had a general who was passive. And all of us know old George from the dollar bill, right? Where he's old guy, doing like this. He's angry looking on the dollar bill. And that's too bad because we don't really know 45-year-old George. 45-year-old George was handsome and strong and incredible, considered one of the greatest leaders in the world ever, okay? His men would rather die than walk out on him kind of guy. And George Washington had this guy who he had made a general, who's a, that's a sacred chair, and he wouldn't act. And in a battle, that general was supposed to bring in his men, and he didn't. He, he was passive. And so after the battle, George, in front of everybody, gets that general and pulls him out. And he says, why did your men not come into the battle? And the guy hem-hauled around like passive people do. Well, I'm just busy, and man, it's just a stage of life. Man, boys be boys. How all passive people talk, right? Well, it's just, they're just kids. They're teenagers, you know, they're tough. We all have our little lines. Well, you know, marriage, whole ball and change, you know what I'm saying? Just tough sometimes, that's how passive people talk. I'm just bit. You know how passive people talk? I'm just busy. It's a form of passivity. Mm -hmm. And so the guy started him hawing around, and George Washington looked at him and said, you're relieved of your generalship, which would have been a career ender. And then he looked at him and said this quote, if you did not intend to act, you should have never accepted the position." If you did not intend to act, you should have never accepted the position. Now, what in our lives are we not acting on? What has God given us that we just won't act? Saul will not do a thing. And Saul's going to get real mad when another guy comes on the scene and does do something. And everybody gets excited about seeing someone doing something. And Saul's going to get all mad about that down the road. But right now, He's passive. He's passive. What's the price of passivity for us? The Bible tells us. In Proverbs 24, the Bible tells us that a passive person is a sluggard. That's what he calls. That's what the Bible calls a passive person. And, and this is going to give you an illustration for your life. Your life is like a vineyard. And if you're passive, you are the sluggard in the story. I am the sluggard in the story if we're passive. It says this, I pass by the field of a sluggard, a passive person. By the vineyard, that's your life, of a man lacking sense, and behold, here's what happened. It was all overgrown with thorns, 
The ground was covered with nettles, weeds. Its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It's an incredible picture of what passivity does and the price of passivity. Now, what is the price of passivity? Price number one that we see here in this passage is thorns and weeds. Price number one would be thorns and weeds. Unfruitfulness is what that is. It means things could have happened that don't happen if you sit in a chair and don't do anything. A family with passive parents, the kids could have gotten leadership that they don't get. There could have been direction, but there wasn't direction. There could have been thriving, but there's only surviving because there's a lack of engagement at some level. We see it in organizations. We see it in churches. Thorns and weeds grow where there should have been vines and grapes. This thing could have been way better if someone would have done something, something. So it's unfruitful. Price number two, the walls start crumbling. That's, that's a weakened defense system. The walls that protected the vineyard because the guy's passive and doesn't take care of them, they begin to crumble, and that's what's keeping the bad stuff out, and that makes you vulnerable. Hey, let me tell you something. A teenager with passive parents is a vulnerable teenager. I hear these kind of phrases a lot. I hear, well, man, I think... Kids are teenagers, got to learn how to, they need to learn somehow. They need you to lead. Kid doesn't need a buddy. They got 40 of those. They need dad. They need a mom. Your daughter doesn't need you to be her BFF. Come on now. She needs a mom. They need a dad. And I'm not talking down to anybody right now. I am in the middle of this game with you. And I got to look in the mirror. And this is where real theology hits hard. Because I'm like you and every other guy that preaches this wrong sometimes. I want to see myself as David with a slingshot, all brave, knocking out the giant. But I got way more King Saul in me than I want to admit. And you do too, don't you? Because too often, it's so easy to sit back in the tent and just not engage Right? If we're honest, right? It's hard. It's hard. But there's a price to be paid for not acting. So we're vulnerable. Price number three, sooner or later the attack comes. The Philistines show up. You don't keep those borders tight and you get extreme loss. That's what it says here. In the middle of the night when he didn't expect it, the passive person, the price is, is enacted. The, the battle begins. The attack comes and it's bad bad. And I see so many times the end result, when you backtrack it, you see the passivity along the way, the folding of the hands, the sleeping, the napping, not physically, not literally, proverbially. The, well, maybe it'll just work itself out. So when we look at Saul's life, like us, if you trace it backwards, what you'll find when people are passive it's normally because of sin issues in their life. That's true of Saul. Present passivity is often preceded by past disobedience to God. Why do we have the king of Israel not facing this guy for 80 opportunities? Why is he so passive? Because he's got massive sin issues in his life. In fact, I'm going to show you that 
that even though Saul still wears the crown of king, God has already moved on at this point. Did you know that when David and Goliath happens, Saul had already been disqualified as king, even though he still has the crown? And, he ha- and, and this happened because he was disobedient. He would not do what God told him to do. And in fact, not only would he not do what he told him to do, he decided to do the things God forbade him to do. One of those was that Samuel, the prophet, was the only one to give certain sacrifices. Saul decided one day he would do it. Big no-no. This added to a whole list of things that Saul had really messed up bad. And so when that happened, when Saul made that sacrifice, Samuel had to come and confront him. And in 1 Samuel 15, it says this, Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord your God and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. This happened before David and Goliath. So when Saul's sitting in his chair, still has the crown, he's not God's king anymore. God's moved on. See, there is a price. And see, the thing is, is the window closes on our chairs. Look, I'm facing it right now. I have a senior in high school. I cannot believe that. When I came to this church, he was starting the first grade. Now he's a senior. My window's closing fast. I don't even walk down that hallway we have at the Fairhope campus anymore that tells you how long you have left. I don't want to see that anymore. I feel it. And I have to ask myself, what have I done with that chair for 18 years? Have I been engaged? Not perfect. Have I been engaged? Because what we need to understand is present passivity will create vacuums that will be filled. It it creates a vacuum. In Saul's case, Another guy's about to come on the scene because he will not lead. Another guy's coming. And let me help you here. Listen, if you won't parent your kids, someone will. This culture will be glad to. If you won't have hard conversations as a parent, this culture will have them for you. It'll teach them for you. I promise you, if you don't want to teach your kids, their friends will. If you don't want to look at what your kid's looking at on a cell phone because you think it's their private space, <clears throat> even though you're paying for it, might want to rethink that. Passivity is not going to work anymore, not when the enemies are invading. I promise you that if you won't engage in your marriage, you're going to pay a price for that. There's a price to be paid. If you're a patriarch or matriarch of your family, you're the granddad, you're the grandma, and you don't figure out a way to keep living it in front of your kids and staying connected as hard as that is, I promise you someone or something will. The vacuum will be filled. David's going to fill it. In fact, what I love about David, it David's going to start doing the things the chair required before he ever even got the chair. He just started doing what had to be done. It creates vacuums. So in 1 Samuel 16, we're introduced to David when Samuel anoints him the king. This is before David and Goliath. Did you know that? Samuel went to Jesse famously. Jesse had a bunch of boys, youngest one being David. He doesn't even bring him up there. Samuel says, are all your sons here? Jesse said, nope, there's one more, the youngest. 
but he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. I love that. When an old guy tells you he's not going to sit down until you do something, he's serious because he wants to sit down. (laughs) He's like, I'm tired. Get that boy in here. So they brought him in. The Bible gives you your first description. What's different about David than Saul is he's not big. He's ruddy. He's a little guy. But it says he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. In other words, God had already decided to go find someone who would engage. Who would engage? Who would get involved? Who would do something? Who would have a hard conversation? Who would have the energy to engage and do something? not just sit back. So what do we learn from the day? Here's where we're going to land the plane on day one of David and Goliath as we look at Saul because we all have a lot of Saul in us. We should not delay in taking obedient action. That's the point. The point is in whatever chairs God has given you, and we all have them, don't delay to take not just action, not just any old action because some action would be sinful. No, obedient action. Do what God has commanded you to do and do it now and don't put it off and engage even if it makes people mad. It's going to make Saul mad when David engages, even if people don't like it. Even if your kid tells you, I'm mad at you. Okay, I I bet you like the food. (laughs) It's okay. It's funny how my kids keep coming to the dinner table, even when they're mad. It's okay. Engage. When are you going to call the counselor for your marriage? When are you going to sit down and have the conversation? When are you going to talk to your teenager and say, hey, let's get this fixed. Let's talk about what I'm seeing. When are we going to do it? When, when, when? 80 times. Saul did nothing. Isaiah 32 tells us to think of noble things and then do them. Good things. Noble he who is noble, if you're, really, if you're really engaged, you're not just going to plan things, you're going to do them. You're going to stand on those things. That's what that says. So my question today is, what in your life do you need to take action on? Now, now, Jesus, help us today to apply your word to our lives. By your grace, in your name, amen. <laughs>